of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is uh, August 25th, 2017, and of course it is Friday, so it's time for the Monster Show of the Week, the Expert Council Q&A Show. It is episode 2073, and I'm doing today's show a little different than normally. There will be no history segment today. There will be no sponsors today. Uh, and there'll be no MSB mention or anything. I'll say a little bit about T-SPAS toward the end, but we're going to get right into the show. I am going to tell you what we're going to talk about, but it's the lead story as to why I'm just skipping everything today, because this might be one to share with some of your stubborn, stubborn, hard-headed uh, family members or friends, or maybe you need to hear it. So I want to get today's show out by 3 o'clock if possible, because there's still time to uh, respond to the lead story, which today is going to be get out, get out, Get out, and that applies to anyone in the direct path of Hurricane Harvey. I'll cover that in a second. After that, we're going to hear from Doc Bones on a first aid kit for the fishermen. We're going to hear about rooting willow cuttings from Nicholas Ferguson. Uh, Dan Orman will make his uh, debut on the show as our law enforcement officer uh, with a Leo's take on Charlottesville, specifically the, the police response to it. This is a question I gave Dan because I don't think the police did their job right. I don't think it's necessarily their fault. Uh, I think it was what they were ordered to do. Um, a question for Tim Glantz on CB radios for hunting in remote areas. A question on determining profit with mining crypto for Brandon Todd. And I have a final anchor segment today, why people actually make the case that taxes are voluntary, with an example of an email sent to me trying to make this case. I'm not going to put the guy down, but I'm going to explain why people even try the, to, to make a logical case for something completely irrational. And it's more a psychological thing than anything else. So let's start off. With my lead story for you today, which is get out, get out, get out. I published an article, short article on the blog, and it may be better than this episode to share with people, but get out, okay? This is what I'm just going to read the article to you. I have said get out, get out, get out two other times since I've started TSP. The first was in reference to the stock market in 2008. The second was in reference to Hurricane Ike, also in 2008. Both times, I was sadly right. So it has been nine years since I last said, get out, get out, get out. Please listen to me if you live in a major impact area for this storm. The media talking heads are in love with their coverage of the storm. Gives them something to be big over the top about with little need of actual hype. They are also falling over themselves to determine if Harvey will make landfall as a Category 2 or Category 3 storm. You know what this is like? This is like debating about whether or not you want to be shot center mass by a 308 or a 306. There may be a few feet per second difference, but the terminal effects are going to be identical and you are going to die. This storm will be a few miles per hour in max wind over or under 110, and it won't matter what number they assign to it, the terminal effects are going to be the same. If it is 108 or 112, the Saphir Simpson number will change, but the effects won't. America has suffered from mine is bigger syndrome so long that people think this actually matters. It doesn't. Here is the deadly combination and why I'm saying get out, get out, get out. First, this storm is well organized and it is going to be very harsh in making landfall. Again, a few miles per hour won't mean shit when it does. So you are going to get typical major storm surge and damage. 
The nightmare, though, will be flooding, and flooding kills more people every year in the U.S. than other weather-related forces. This is a, there is a system right now sitting over North Texas where I live. The system is holding Harvey's speed of movement, not its wind speed, to a snail's crawl. So when it makes landfall, it is going to be like a slow-moving buzzsaw. It is going to stay near the coast for a long time, which will give it a lot of fuel that it can draw in moisture and heat from the Gulf. Worse, it is going to stall. It will dump over three feet of rain in some areas. The flooding is going to look biblical. I say again, if you are where major impacts are going to be, get out, get out, get out. Sure, a day into this, it will likely weaken into a tropical storm as it sits over land. It won't matter. You will still likely get tornadoes, wind shears, and straight-line wind damage. Again, though, you are going to have flooding in ways some won't even believe when they see it. I could be wrong. I probably am not. So please, one more time, get out, get out, get out. The last time a storm really stalled like this and dumped massive rain was Tropical Storm Debbie in 2012 in Florida. The TV barely mentioned it, but many that lived through it know it brought massive misery. The highest rainfall totals were about 25 inches. You can see that here, and I have a link to where you can see the rainfall totals from, from that storm. Well, Harvey already has some rainfall projections over 35 inches. That's 10 more if you're counting, and I think you should. Do you get it yet? Everyone is worried about wind, and that is wise. But the water is the bigger danger. I have said my piece. If you are in the impact zone, you know what to do. If you have family staying there and they want to stick it out, please talk them into taking a brief vacation. There are lots of nice hotels in Austin, good music and good food. If nothing happens, go home Monday and go back to work. If you have dogs, find a pet-friendly hotel. Find a relative to shack up with for a few days. Listeners to this show should have a bug-out plan. This storm is exactly why that is important. Okay, I'm going to add to this. Get out, get out, get out, get the hell out if you are in the path of this storm. I don't care what your rationalization is. And again, I could be wrong. I'm probably not. And what I want to reinforce, if you're somewhere, someone down there, okay, I don't do alarmism. I don't do it. It's not what I do. You guys know that. I'm the one that always comes out and says the media is full of shit. Don't worry about this. This is no big. I did it with swine flu. I did it with so many different things. Where hey, don't worry about it. This is all Ebola. Remember Ebola? Ebola. Every day they're on TV. It's going to kill us all. Like, you are more likely to die slipping in the tub than to even know someone who knows someone that knows someone that got freaking Ebola. This is not a freaking game. There is a confluence of conditions. That if everything hits itself off right, I mean, when I say biblical-looking flooding, that's what I'm talking about. Now, no, I, I'm not worried about it. For me, I'm 250 miles north of San Antonio, actually 300 miles almost north of San Antonio. You know what it's going to do to me? Nothing. In fact, I'm the problem. Not me personally, but we are the problem right here. That's what I'm trying to say. There is a, a pressure system that has been sitting over da the Dallas-Fort Worth, north-central Texas area for almost a week now. And it isn't going anywhere anytime soon. It's been nice for us. We're getting rain every day, like a little bit here and a little bit there. Beautiful rain yesterday. Poured, like, probably gave us a quarter inch in about 20 minutes. It is a great, great thing for us. It is a terrible thing for South Texas because this storm is coming. 
Because this system is not going to let that storm go far inland like they normally do. It's going to bumble around for a couple days. It is probably going to drift back southeast. It is probably going to go back out to sea, not real far, but far enough to strengthen. And it's going to go up the freaking coast to the east by northeast. It's going to rape like Galveston and freaking Beaumont. We're going to probably have two landfalls. It's going to be like two, two hurricanes, even though it's one. Get out. There, I've said my piece. I feel I've done what my responsibility is on this show. And I know a lot of people want to think they're tough. But what do I always say? You bug out whenever bugging out improves your survivability. There is no question at this point that there is enough risk sufficient to pack up the dogs, pack up the kids, and take a couple days of vacation. And don't worry about looting, because the looters are going to be floating down the street if you're where you need to not be, okay? you know. And if nothing happens, great. If nothing happens, you don't have to worry about looting. If something happens, you're better off being the hell out of there. Okay, let's go on to, uh, to our first one for an expert council member today. A first aid kit for the fishermen from Doc Bones. Doc, take it away, man. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with close to 1,000, wow, articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the brand new 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Dean, who writes... Spring is coming, and I've got thoughts of taking my wife and son on a fishing and camping trip to a state park. This got me thinking about what I should bring and how should I treat myself or my family if a fishing hook accidentally gets stuck through a finger or other body part. It would be interesting to hear the differences between what one should do with or without the modern medical system and what tools, bandages, and medications should be in our kit for this emergency. Dean, even if you're an accomplished fisherman, you will eventually wind up with a fish hook embedded in you somewhere, probably your hand. Since the hook probably has worm guts or other remnants of bait in it, start off by cleaning the area thoroughly with an antiseptic. So therefore, your kit should have lots of antiseptics to help prevent infection. There are several ways to remove a fish hook. The retrograde technique is the simplest. It works especially well for barbless or superficially embedded hooks, which are, I admit, probably the minority. Start by applying downward pressure to the shank of the hook, and this maneuver helps rotate the hook deeper and also to disengage the barb from the tissue. The hook can then be backed out of the skin along the point of entry. No obvious medical supplies needed for that. Another method uses an 18-gauge or larger IV needle in your medical kit, and that can be advanced along the entry wound of a fish hook. The direction of insertion should be parallel to the shank, which admittedly requires some dexterity. The bevel of the needle should point towards the inside of the curve of the fish hook, enabling the needle opening to engage the barb. It's important to have the bevel pointed in the correct direction so that the longer edge of the needle matches the angle of the fish hook point. 
advance the fish hook to disengage the barb, then pull and twist it so that the point actually enters the opening of the IV needle. I told you you need some dexterity here. You can then back out the fish hook the same way as in the previous technique that I mentioned, taking care to move the needle along the track with the fish hook. Now, if this doesn't work, you may have to advance the fish hook further along the skin until the barbed end comes out again. Ouch. At this point, you might need a wire cutter, so that might be something that's very useful to have, and separate the barbed end from the shank. Then just pull the shank out from whence it came. Wash the area again, cover with a bandage, so some bandages would probably be very useful, and you have to observe carefully over time for signs of infection. After removal of the fish hook, explore the area for foreign bodies, for example, little pieces of bait that might be left in the wound. It's usually okay to leave the wound open, just apply an antibiotic ointment, another thing that you might need, and a bandage on top. Tetanus toxoid in normal times should be administered to persons for whom more than five years have elapsed since their last tetanus booster. And antibiotics can be used, certainly are useful to have, but they might best be reserved for wounds that begin to show signs of infection, like redness, swelling, and warmth around the injury. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times are bad. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show on our YouTube channel at drbones. Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks for listening. Good stuff from Doc Bones. If you want to see somebody actually remove fish hooks, if you can tolerate a bit of stupidity, and some gut-wrenching imagery where a fool sticks four fishing hooks into his arm. I'm not even going to link to this video. I don't want to really be directly associated with it, but it is legitimate on removal methods. There is a video on YouTube of a fishing guide who sticks four fish hooks, big ones, into his forearm and then removes them and shows you how to do it. It will turn your stomach, but you do know it exists now if you want to go look at it. Next up, though, let's talk to Nick Ferguson about rooting willow cuttings. And then the guy that sent the question has some follow-up with some things that have happened since he asked it. So first, Nick, go ahead and take it away on the willow cuttings and trouble rooting willow, which is supposed to be so easy. Hey, everyone. Nick Ferguson here with another answer for the expert counsel. Today, I have a question on propagating willows from cuttings. And since it may be easier for some people to understand all the steps easier through video, head over to my Patreon page to sign up and see a video with all the details on these methods. Much of the same info is applicable to tons of other types of plants as well. So I encourage you to check that video out. I'll film that this weekend and upload it next week. So go to patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty to check that out uh, one of the listeners has had some trouble getting black willow to root so i've been asked to chime in with how i would go about it i'll give you two quick and easy methods you can try and then talk about the details of each method number one stick as many cuttings as you'd like in some moist potting soil and wrap that container up in a white plastic trash bag tie the top and leave it in dappled shade for a couple months That'll probably do the trick. Method number two, put all the cuttings in some water in a quart jar with an aquarium air pump 
blowing bubbles from the bottom of the jar. Those are my quick answers. Now here's the details on how to take and prep the cuttings, followed by specific details on each method to make sure you have success. To take the cuttings, get a pair of sharp pruning shears and a bucket of water or a jar if you prefer. Cut as much of the newest growth that is close to pencil diameter, no smaller than pencil lead. The smallest stuff won't have enough embodied energy to root. And the larger stems bigger than a pencil diameter most often have too many cells that are too stuck in their current role to differentiate into root-forming cells, kind of like stem cells. So it's best to take the more young material. And to prep the cuttings, make sure... All of the cuttings are kept with the tip of the branch pointing up and the base of the branch pointing down. The technical term for the tip is the apical end, and the part that is closest to the roots is called the basal end. So it's good practice to just make sure you always have the cuttings oriented correctly with apical tip always up. Then you strip all the leaves off. Willows root quickly enough. You don't need leaves. If you really want to, you can make all your... Um, cutting pieces and then leave one or two leaves on each cutting, but that likely won't be needed. Um, make sure you keep the cuttings in water from the moment you take each cutting until it's time to stick them in the rooting medium, no matter what you do. So uh, when you go out there, make sure you have a bucket or a container of water and snip the cuttings off and pop them immediately into that water and keep them in there until they're where they're going to stay. It's important to keep them wet or they will die. So for method number one, I'd go with something like a three-gallon pot filled with a good loose potting mix, like Pro Mix, but any potting mix should work just fine. And you can also use a white five-gallon bucket with holes drilled in the bottom for drainage. I'd go with white because it lets in a little bit of light. And you'll want a minimum of eight inches of potting mix to make sure you maintain good moisture levels so there's enough of the wood in the soil to root well. And wills will root all along the whole stem of the cutting. So for optimal success, I'd push each 8 to 12 inch long cutting three quarters of the way into the potting mix. And after they're all stuck in the potting mix, water the whole thing well to close the gaps between the cuttings and the potting mix because it makes a little hole. And to ensure that the mix is well moistened, let it drain for a minute and then get a white plastic trash bag, not black or clear or anything else. Get white, and this will allow enough light through to keep them alive but not let it heat up too much. Tie the bag off lightly and suspend the the top of the bag above the pot or bucket so it doesn't droop down and touch the cuttings. You don't want it to look like a cone. You want it to look like a teepee. You know, you want that plastic to be sticking up above it. So either suspend it with some sticks on the inside or just set it next to something you can kind of wrap the little ties around so it stays up and off of the cuttings. Place that whole setup in dappled shade. Direct sunlight will kill the plants. Full shade will promote rot. It won't be enough light to keep them alive. You want some dappled light to hit it for at least two to four hours a day. And they should root in a couple weeks to a month. And as soon as they start putting on new growth that's more than an inch, open the bag up and check them daily, but leave them in the dappled light. Make sure it stays moist in there, but not soaking wet. Then after they're growing and rooted well, you can submerge the whole bucket or pot in a bucket of water to turn the potting mix into a slurry so you can remove the cuttings without damaging the roots. For method two, you prep the cuttings the exact same way, but this time make sure you have an air pump pushing air through an air stone in the bottom of a jar filled with water. I just use quart jars, and then all you have to do is keep the water topped off in the jar, and that jar of oxygenated water is far simpler but requires more frequent maintenance because you can't let them dry out. 
Um, the pot in the bag method is initially, you know, just a little bit more complicated, but it's pretty much set and forget. You can forego the air stone if you can't afford it, but for 12 bucks or so, you can get a cheap air pump and an air stone via Amazon, and oxygenating it will really help them make more roots and quicker. I'll have links to um, some air pumps and air stones, all the materials you might need, Amazon links on my blog over at homegrownliberty.com. And that about wraps up my answer. And again, if that was at all confusing or you would rather see what I'm talking about, head over to patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty and sign up as a supporter with as little as a dollar per month to get access to videos and support my work. Thanks, guys, for all the great questions. Keep them coming. Do good things. Okay, so as promised, David, who asked this question, has some follow-up on. He sent me an email today. It says, uh, not long ago I emailed a question for for Nick and or Jack on black willow cuttings I was having no luck w with. Quite a few have started putting on new leaves. It seems that the best results have been with the cuttings that came off from shoots off of the trunk. Other than that, the technique does not seem to matter that much. My advice is get a year's growth, preferably a shoot off the trunk near the ground. Keep it wet and moist soil in wet water. Dehydrated water won't work. <laughs> Thanks for the show and the experts, David. So time, I think, maybe was on his side there. Just uh, needed some time for everything to work. Willow is actually like, when I heard that, I'm like, really? Because willow is like one of the easiest plants to root. In fact, Willow buds are often used to make like a natural rooting hormone, so glad to hear it's working. So this next question is from me. It's for Dan Orman uh, on Charlottesville's response from the law enforcement. Now, I'm not actually blaming the individual officers because officers follow orders. That's what they do. Um, that's what they're trained to do. That's what they're expected to do. And frankly, if they don't, they get fired. I feel like what happened was this in Charlottesville. And this doesn't actually make any defense of either side in all of the violence that happened. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the police department being responsible for security at the event. And, for instance, Dallas did a great job with the rally that happened last week. My brother-in-law was, was at that as a member of law enforcement to deal with it. The law enforcement community did a great job in Boston. So I'm not picking on Antifa, Black Lives Matter... The KKK had nothing to do with that. In the end, protests happen, and law enforcement is supposed to handle it. This is what I feel happened. I feel that they crammed them into that little square. They let them be completely surrounded, and then the police stood down. And that forced a conflict because the, the, the white nationalist KKK you know, Nazi assholes had to walk through the Antifa assholes. And I feel like... It made the, there's 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 blame to go on the Charlottesville Police Department because of that. But I'm not a law enforcement officer, so I thought I'd throw it to Dan and see what he has to say. And I'm going to listen to his response for the first time with you right now. I have no idea what he said. Here we go. Dan, take it away. Hey, guys, this is Dan Oman making my inaugural call-in for the Expert Council. 
real quick on my background, I served for 10 years in the Metro Atlanta Police Department. I did five years on uniform patrol, and I served five years as a detective in various capacities. I did robbery, homicide, crimes against children, and crimes against elderly, and I have experience with a lot of different kind of cases. I'm here to answer all your questions on law enforcement and the criminal justice system in general. And boy, am I hitting the ground running with this first question. I thought I would get some soft questions to get me broken in, but that's not the case. We're starting off with the Charlottesville incident. In the wake of the craziness that occurred in the Charlottesville, Virginia incident, there's been a lot of criticism of the way that the police handled that situation. And normally when we hear criticism of the police, especially in riot scenarios, it's usually that the police were too heavy-handed and too aggressive, that sort of thing. But in this case, it's the exact opposite. The criticism is the police didn't do enough and that they basically allowed the situation to devolve the way it did. The question I got about this was, do I feel that is what happened? And if so, does the chief or the leadership bear any responsibility for the injuries and death that occurred? And before I get to directly answering that, I want to set things up with some assumptions that I've made based on my observation and my understanding of things. First of all, we need to take a look at Charlottesville. What is the population? What is the size of the police department? These are important questions to ask because the answers to these questions give us a little insight as to the training and experience that the police officers involved may have had. From what I looked up, Charlottesville is a small university town. It's about an hour outside of Richmond and two hours outside of D.C. The population of the city itself is around 50,000, and the entire county and city population is about 150,000 or so. This is not a huge town. This is not a big city. This is not Atlanta. This is not New York. This is not L.A. or Chicago. I tried to find out just how many police officers the city of Charlottesville employs. However, due to the excessive of volume, the server is not functioning properly, and I was not able to get that information. But based on that population size, I would say they probably have somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 sworn officers. And given the overall population of the area, I'd say they're probably not working with a huge training budget. So the first thing we look at in all this with the officer's response to the incident is their training Given the size of the police department and the size of the population, their training to deal with these types of incidents is probably extremely minimal, and it's probably very unlikely that they had any training for this type of scenario where you have two opposing groups fighting each other in a riot scenario. The standard scenario that police departments historically train for is that you have one protesting group and they're protesting either the government, a court decision, a corporation, something like that. And this party that is being protested against is generally not present. You have just one angry crowd. In Charlottesville, we have two opposing forces. So with that alone, the officers are already outside of their wheelhouse with that. And getting back to the single group protester scenario that law enforcement is more accustomed to dealing with, in that scenario, the police generally are trained to create a perimeter and to keep any incident contained within a certain perimeter. That's not to say that they'll necessarily let violence occur and let it burn itself out. However, 
the number one role of the police in that scenario is them to contain an incident. If there are an agitator or two that it's getting rowdy or uh, causing violence, four or five police officers can break off, detain the one to two to three, however many it is, agitators, and pull them out of the scenario. So even if the Charlottesville Police Department had some basic training in protests and crowd management, generally the training that they probably would have had would have been insufficient anyway for this sort of thing. And that leads us to experience. Charlottesville, again, not a populated area, not a big city. They're not accustomed to having to deal with these types of protests. If this were New York, L.A., Chicago, Atlanta, any of the other major cities that are more experienced dealing with these levels of incidents, you probably have a stronger leadership that's able to respond more quickly to changing dynamics in the scenario. The other factor that deserves some consideration in all this is the political influence. We all know that a county sheriff is elected in a popular election and is held accountable to his constituents. That's not how it works with a city police department. The police chief is not elected. The police chief is appointed generally by the city council. So the chief serves at the pleasure of the council. Now, what role did the city council have in all of this? This all started back in March of 2016, I believe it was, when the vice mayor of the city, who obviously has some role with the city council, put a call out to the city council to take a vote on removing the General Lee statue. This is what attracted the attention of John Kessler, who was the guy who organized this whole event. He started a campaign at that point to preserve the statue, which later resulted in him calling for the removal of the vice mayor. He launched a petition to have the guy pulled out of office and wound up exposing a bunch of politically damaging tweets that the vice mayor had made at some point in his career. I'm bringing this up because there's a potential that some of these city council members could have a personal vendetta against Kessler and any other of those folks that were organizing for the statue. Could they have told the chief of police to have their officers not get involved, just stand by? Absolutely. I am absolutely not saying that's what happened here, but that is a possibility that there was some influence from the council on the chief and the police department's reaction. So to get back to answering the question did the police abandon the situation and allow the conflicts to erupt? The answer to this question, based on everything I've seen, the reports I've read and all that, the answer is yes. It really looks like the police were standing by, holding their positions that they were told to hold, and not intervening with the violence until after the dispersal order came through, where the event was declared an unlawful assembly. There was that tweet put out by the ACLU who claims that the police were given the order to not intervene unless commanded to do so. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sure is consistent with the behavior we saw from the police department. So the second part of the question, does the leadership bear any responsibility for the injuries and the death that occurred? And to really answer that, we need to look at why the police did not get involved. Was it the lack of training and experience that the officers had? One of the lieutenants for the police department said that basically they had a plan in place on how to manage the situation and things didn't go in 
according to plan. There could be some of that at play here, but it's really hard to buy that whole argument because the big incident occurred on a Saturday, the day where there was the death by the vehicle and all the fighting. That was a Saturday. The night before, there was that torch-lit march through the University of Virginia campus, and there was violence that occurred during that demonstration. So it's just really hard to imagine that the police would not be expecting this level of violence the following day. So that takes me back to the question, did the city council play any political influence on the police department's leadership to tie the hands of the officers on the ground and not intervene? I don't know the answer to that, but if the answer to that question is yes, then it's malfeasance on both the council and the leadership of the police department because they are sworn to protect the First Amendment rights of the protesters regardless of the vile, hateful position that the protesters may have. And above all, they are peace officers. They are required to keep the peace. That is their purpose. So either way, we have a failure by the police department to do what they need to do. But let's not forget, the folks who were injured during this event were in violation of Frank Sharp Jr.'s policy of don't do stupid things with stupid people and stupid places. The big takeaway from this is you are ultimately responsible for your own safety. You cannot rely on third parties for your safety, so don't put yourself in situations in which your safety could be jeopardized. And I'm sure at some point the court is going to be deciding if the leadership had any responsibility in the injuries or death that occurred. If they haven't already, I'm sure there is somebody that's going to be filing suit at some point here. And I guarantee every police department in the country right now is revisiting and revising their training and policies on how to handle these issues. So that's about the best I can do on this one for now. If you want to check out my life after law enforcement, head on over to our YouTube channel, The Grass-Fed Homestead, where we have over 300 videos on homesteading, permaculture, homestead cooking, all kinds of great stuff, and basically living the life that we're all dreaming about here on TSP. So I want to give some follow-up on this to some things that I know here locally. So... I speak speak to law enforcement officers in the area. A lieutenant from Grand Prairie Police Department, which is a city of um, about 175,000 people. Um, this, this gentleman's a lieutenant. He took a contingency of 30 officers from Grand Prairie to Dallas for the protests that went on in Dallas. Okay? And... He was there at the request of the Dallas PD to help support it. Now, Dallas clearly has a very, very large police force. And I would say that the number of protesters in the Dallas protest was not much bigger than the total number of protesters that went to Charlottesville. And they still needed assistance from other parties. He told me he felt that his officers were not sufficiently trained for this type of work. That that's not the work they normally do. This would back up what Dan's saying, especially about something like Charlottesville. Imagine if they're not really trained for this in Grand Prairie, Texas, a city of 175,000 surrounded by a metroplex of 6.2 million people. How, how untrained for this type of activity. It's not what they're supposed to be doing on a daily basis. He also said he didn't feel he had the right equipment. And that he told his chief, if I do not have the right equipment and some training for my people, we're not doing this. So everything worked out well. He said one of the things that happened was the, 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 where the actual statues were, they roped that off and said, no one's going in there. We're going to have people climbing up there and pulling them down. 
And at some point during this, a very large group of Antifa marched down to the statue, chanting that they were going to pull it down. They ran into about 60 Texas State Troopers in full riot gear. So they turned around and came back. Okay? So my issue here is that I completely agree with what Dan said, but I do not believe that all of the resources available were used because law enforcement organizations do interdepartmental enforcement for things like this all the time. That's what this lieutenant from Grand Prairie does. That's his job now. He's over events, and he's constantly working, you know, big football games, for God's sakes, stuff like that. So, and last time I checked, last time I checked, there were state police officers available, um, for, in, you know, in the Charlottesville area that are better trained for stuff like this. So there was an ability to have a larger contingency of law enforcement to prevent this violence, and it wasn't used, and I believe it was willful. Now, again, if you think this has any bearing on defending white nationalists, Antifas, anybody, you're not getting it. I am not even discussing the ideology today. I'm done with it. We know what happened, and we know who did what, okay? To a large degree, anyway. The point is, if you're going to have a situation with large numbers of people, then law enforcement needs to be able to deal with that when you have this type of conflict going on. And when they don't, the consequences are always extremely negative. I know someone's saying, well, how do you square all this as an anarchist, Jack? Well, here's how I square it as an anarchist. First of all, if we had an anarchy, a real anarchy, a, a voluntarist, agorist society, most of this shit wouldn't be a problem because there wouldn't be public property with public statues to bitch about. If you wanted a statue on your property, you'd have it there, and if someone tried to damage it, you'd have a right to defend your property. So most of the conflict would just not be there. But as above all, as always, I'm a pragmatist. We don't have an anarcho-state, do we? We have a republic. We have a republic that's falling apart. We have a republic that won't even live up to the promise of the republic it's supposed to be. But we have what we have. And we have people that are put into positions to ensure certain things. And I don't see any problem holding public officials accountable for keeping the peace. For keeping the peace. That was the most astute thing Dan said to me. That that's their purpose. To keep the peace. And I think part of the systemic problem that we do have in law enforcement is we don't have that as the central ideal anymore. And I was saying to someone today on Facebook something I think you might find relevant here with the whole world of law enforcement in the United States today. And, and, and you've know, you got to get up the blind support of anything. You have to support that which should be supported and not support that which is wrong. There are problems. And people in leadership positions that would do this are an example of one of them. A gentleman I really, really like um, on, on Facebook named Desmond, who's a black man, posted a thing today that if a white person posted, I guarantee you it would have went viral. They would have, they would have doxed him, called him a racist. Antifa would be, have people calling his employer. He basically said the short version was, who's doing more damage around our country today? white supremacists or young black males. And he said, the last time somebody damaged your car or 
stole petty theft or something from your property or whatever, is it more likely that it would have been a white supremacist or a young black male? And he said, sadly, as a black man, I have to say it would be more likely that it would be a young black male. And we, basically calling his own community out, need to step up and fix this shit. And I, I mentioned that, you know, listen, man, I know if I would have said what you just said, I would be labeled a racist. Not by you, but by society. And if we can't even point to the problem, whether it be the problem that we do have with the young black male population in certain specific demographics of it, and even discuss it without being streamed out as a racist, how will we ever solve it? And that's how I feel about law enforcement. If we can't even discuss the problems in law enforcement, how can we ever fix them? And I said, you know, maybe all of these problems need a, an Alcoholics Anonymous 12-step program to go with them. And we all know what step one is, don't we? Step one is admit the problem and ask for help. And I think that's the lot, there's a lot of places that we need to be thinking that way in our society today. And recently, I've even been caught up in it. And the reason is I have been lamb-blasted with shit from actual hardcore Nazi KKK-level racists. And I've been short with people I shouldn't have been because of that. Because I start to hear they're, they're like making this case for you know blacks and whites are, are, are actually different. There's, they're not 100% identical. Well, that's a true statement. But why are you bringing it up in the context of you know a racist debate other than to defend racism? And some people aren't. They're just tired of it, like I've said before. Well, I mean, that's how people are starting to feel all around here on all these issues. Law enforcement, racism, politics, etc. We're in the middle of a powder keg. And the only way we're going to fix this is we're all going to have to work on this shit together. And we're going to all have to get to a point where we start saying, you know what? That is a problem and we cannot be afraid to discuss that problem or we're never going to, not, not, just, not even fix it. How about just improve it? Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another one. Uh, this next one came in for Tim Glantz on CB radios for hunting in remote areas. Tim, man, take it away. Hey, everybody. Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus here with an expert panel answer for Sean in Maine about CB radios. Sean writes in that he was lucky enough to get a moose tag this year up in Maine to go hunting, and everybody has recommended him that he get a CB radio to be able to talk to the truckers in his area on the logging roads and everything else. And I think that's an excellent idea because of all the ways to communicate with them, that's going to be the most universal out there, and there will be the most people listening, uh, especially in those areas with a lot of logging activity. Uh, CB radio is pretty simple to set up. You've got three basic components. got your radio, got your coaxial cable or coax that connects to the antenna, and you got your antenna. On your radio... Uh, if you stick with any of the major brands like Midland, Uniden, or Cobra, uh, you probably can't go wrong. But uh, the two I've got personal experience and I'll recommend on the less expensive side, uh, about $45, $50 would be the Midland 1001 LXW. On the more expensive side, at about $100 would be the Cobra 29 LX. And if somebody looks both of those up, uh, one thing you'll notice they both have in common is that they both also receive NOAA weather radio. Uh, it's cheap to add, get that in your uh, CB. I mean, there's one there for 45 bucks that's got it. That's almost as cheap as a standalone weather radio. Uh, and it makes a whole lot of sense to have it in there because if you're out there where there's no cell phone service or everything else and you need to keep abreast of the weather, that will do it for you. Uh, the uh, coaxial cable, uh, don't scrimp on it. Get good quality stuff. 
look up the specs on it. Keep your run as short as possible. People will tell you, oh, for CB, it's got to be a certain length. Uh, it's an old wives' tale. Uh, unless you're doing uh, phased arrays with more than, you know, two antennas or more, the, the length does not matter uh, for the most part. So keep it as short as possible. You want soldered ends, not crimped ends. Soldered, soldered ends will not fail and get corrosion with vibration and use. Crimped ends will. Uh, so get soldered ends. If you're running your own length and putting your own ends, look on YouTube how to solder the ends, the SO239 and uh, PL259 connectors, and learn how to do it. It's easy. And uh, trust me, you want soldered ends on your coax cable. Your antenna, uh, Sean, since you sound like this is going to be possibly a temporary installation, I would recommend a K40. It's a mag mount. They've been making them for years. They've got a good reputation, and they're very easy to tune. Now, two things with setting this up. Uh, the first, when you wire it into your vehicle, uh, you can either wire it with a 12-volt tap off the fuse box, or you can wire it direct to the battery. Go direct to the battery. Uh, you'll have less chance of getting ignition noise or interference from alternator wine or anything else with it that way. Uh, there should be an ignition sense wire in addition to the power and ground cable. You'll want to uh, use that to turn it on and off with your ignition but you want to run your power direct to the battery and you want it fused right at the battery. Uh, that's important. Don't put the fuse all the way up by the radio, put it back by the battery because if you got five feet or six feet of wire under the hood before the fuse, if you get a short before there, then the fuse is doing you no good. Uh, now I mentioned tuning the antenna when I was talking about the K40. The antennas uh, have what's called standing wave ratio, and basically, uh, to keep it simple, that's a measurement of how effectively the antenna radiates the energy that your uh, CB puts out. Because when you transmit, that radio, that radio frequency energy, that electromagnetic energy goes into the coaxial cable, into the antenna, and gets radiated out to the atmosphere. But unless you've got an absolutely perfect antenna that uh, doesn't really exist in the real world, some of that is not going to be radiated and if it doesn't get radiated because the antenna is not perfectly resonant it's going to come back into the radio a little bit of that is okay and we measure the ratio uh, a standing wave ratio generally it's considered anything three to one or lower is an acceptable one that won't damage your radio higher than that you're either going to do one of two things you're going to start damaging your radio or some radios have a circuit in there that detects it and starts folding back the power, so it's going to cut itself back where it doesn't have any power, so it doesn't hurt itself. Either way, you don't want that. So you've got two options in doing your SWR. You can either take it to a CB shop where he's going to charge you 20 25 bucks to tune it, or you can go on Amazon for the same money or less and buy yourself an SWR meter, a standing wave ratio meter made for CBs, and a short two to three foot coax jumper so you can put this in line with your coax and you can do it yourself. Uh, you can look on YouTube. There's plenty of videos showing you how to measure your SWR and, and guides on how to do it. It's very easy to do. And all you do is you put your meter in line, you take your measurement, and then if it's not within the spec, you adjust your antenna to uh, make it longer or shorter. And usually on the K40, what it is is there's set screws in there and you just move the whip up and down in the base and you take the reading again. And if it went the wrong direction, then you move the direction opposite of what you did, and you just keep doing that, repeating, until you get it uh, as close to a one-to-one -one SWR ratio as you can on either channel 20 in the middle of the band or on the one channel you plan to use the most if you don't plan to use any other channels. Once you've done that, you take that meter out of line, run your run coax back into the back of the radio, and you're good. 
And there's two advantages of doing it this way. Number one, uh, you, you now own that meter. You own a new tool. You've got it. And that also is a power meter that can uh, make sure that your CB is still functioning. And it allows you to check this SWR every six months to a year because when antennas get beat on and get out in the weather and everything, they can fail and go bad. So you want to keep tabs on it. And number two, if you do it yourself, you just learned a new skill. So I highly recommend when you get the uh, radio, go ahead and get an SWR meter in the jumper and take a few minutes to learn how to do it and adjust your own SWR. Hope that helps. And if you got any other questions about choosing a radio or, or tuning your antenna or any of that, uh, you can look me up. My email's right on the website at oldgrouch.com. As always, everybody have a great day. And, Jack, as always, thanks for the great podcast. Great stuff from Tim. And, you know, I... I think if you're my age or a little older, you remember when CBs were a big deal. And, and it just makes me think about technological evolution and what really killed the CB radio. The cell phone did. The cell phone just hammered the CB radio into the ground. It was, it was taking off. There were, in the 70s and early 80s, there were people just playing old, you know, uh, you know, sedans and stuff that, that had CP radios and you'd listen for whether the cops were running radar and stuff like that. Listen to the truckers talk back and forth, etc. And, uh, it just kind of faded back. But like when you're in a situation like, like, uh, like the gentleman asked the question is, is asking where there's no cell coverage that they come right back into being one of the most useful means of communication there is. That's pretty cool. Next, I have a question for Gary Collins on gestational diabetes. Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, where I answer all your questions on primal lifestyle, paleo diet, living off the grid, life simplification, and just a good, healthy life in general. Um, good question today about uh, gestational diabetes, which is when a female in late-term pregnancy actually becomes insulin resistant. Now, the medical community doesn't know quite what causes this. It's just something that happens, like I said, late-term in pregnancy. It does not necessarily mean that they're going to become a type 1 diabetic or that they were a type 1 diabetic before. Now, to get into that, what's the difference between a type 1 and type 2? And some of you who have heard me answer these questions past have heard me answer this. Type 1 is when you either produce very little or no insulin, which means you have the inability to control your blood glucose through insulin correctly. Type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle disease, basically. I never really like calling a lifestyle choice a disease, but that's what we've done with it. That is when you basically ingest too many refined carbohydrates and sugar, causing your body to release excessive amounts of insulin where your cells become insulin resistant. So that means they have the lack of the ability to shuttle away that extra sugar and use it as energy in, in the cellular level. And also insulin uh, also shuttles nutrients into the cells as well. So it has kind of a dual purpose. Now, this, this listener asks, what would be a great way to manage gestational or type 1 diabetes in that her doctor has recommended around 175 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is very typical, uh, anyone suffering this condition. That is a lot of carbs uh, in general uh, for most people. If you're very, very active, even that could be pretty high. 
And obviously, it depends what type of carbohydrates you are consuming. If you're very active and an athlete, you're eating, consuming 175 grams of carbohydrates and vegetables and fruits and still eating healthy meats and, you know, nuts, seeds, as in the paleo diet or primal with some, you know, dairy thrown in, maybe some grains. That's a different story. But for the average American, 175 grams of carbohydrates is quite a bit. And I don't know how you would be able to con adequately control your blood sugar by consuming that many carbohydrates. Now, your doctor said that they are concerned about you going in ketosis or producing too many ketones. What your doctor is talking about is ketoacidosis, which is a can be a fatal uh, reaction to too many ketones in the body for a type 1 diabetic. It can happen in type 2 very rarely, though. It's mainly type 1. And as you guys have heard me explain, too, about too many ketone bodies and eating a high-fat diet for a long time, and that you become more acidic. It doesn't mean you're going to go into a coma or have uh, any type of event as a type 1 diabetic, but it is still unhealthy long-term. So... With that, that's what your doctor is talking about. You you actually will become so acidic, like I said, it can put you into a coma because your body just, the hormonal level, it's not the same as a non-type 1 diabetic. So this is always a concern. So do not go on a high-fat diet if you are suffering from gestational diabetes. You have to, you're getting your sugar, uh, your sugar monitoring strips and all that. That's the best way to control and monitor is you just have to monitor your blood glucose throughout the day. I mean, that's the best advice I can, can give and obviously eat a well-balanced diet. Do not do anything extreme. Do not consume too many carbohydrates. Do not consume mainly just protein. Do not consume mainly fat. Have a good mix of all the three macronutrients and figure out what works best for you with your condition. With that being said, I am not a doctor. So, uh, you know, I highly recommend people with type 1 diabetes or gestational diabetes that they work with their doctor and come up with a solution that works for them. Uh, that is just the honest answer. Uh, type 1 diabetes is a tricky beast. And if someone does something incorrectly, it can it can be fatal. I mean, that's how serious type one diabetes can be, and which is very similar to uh, gestational diabetes. It's the same thing: insulin resistance, or at least you produce insulin, but it's a little different. I hope that answers your question. That was a little long winded, but there was a few moving parts in there. And please make sure to go check out my new book, Going Off the Grid. And if you go to my website and sign up for my newsletter, you get the first chapter free, which is a great deal. All right, guys. Thanks again. So good stuff from Gary. Um, I have a question. Actually, now, like, like, like three questions, but it really all comes back to profitability and ROI on mining cryptocurrency from Brandon Todd. And after you hear Brandon's um uh, answer. I actually have kind of a little bit of an announcement about some uh, mining opportunities coming soon. Hey everyone, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer another question for the expert council. Today I'm going to do something a little different where I'm going to try to combine three different questions into one response because they're, they're all three closely related so much. Um, the first two questions are very similar, so let's read them. First I have Dave where he asks, is it reasonable to build a GPU mining rig and turn a profit in under six months? Details. 
I'm an old computer science guy who's been in management for quite a while and looking for something uh, technical to get back into. Since playing around with Minergate on my quote-unquote gaming laptop, I have done a little more research into altcoins and find the concept of GPU mining rig very interesting. I'm a little concerned that all the online calculators are overly optimistic. If it seems too good uh, to be true, it probably is. So want to check with an expert before I invest a grand or two into a mining rig and find out that I cannot get my investment back. I understand that the difficulty increases, uh, as the difficulty increases, the return will decrease over time. I'm just not sure how quickly it will change and whether it is reasonable to expect to at least break even. I'd also like to use mining to build up stockpiles of lesser known currencies as a speculative play in the market, as well as gaining a hobby that gets me back into technical work, which I enjoy. I'm con- I am confident in my ability to build, configure, and tune the rig to keep it performing, so that's not an issue. Thanks, Dave. All right, just wanted to say, uh, Dave, I really like your attitude on this. Uh, that you know, it might be profitable, but it also will be uh, enjoy- enjoyable and stimulating as well. Uh, this is exactly how I approached it. Uh, you know, getting into a little bit of hobby mining, and it served me well for a number of uh, reasons. So. Uh, now I'm just going to jump over to the next question. I'm going to get back to the answer to, to Dave's answers. But also we have Charlie where he's asking, are there any cryptocurrency mining calculators that account for an increase in difficulty over time? Background. I see a number of mining calculators out there that allow you to enter in uh, network difficulty. However, I'm not. it's not clear whether these take into account the average Increase in difficulty over time. For example, I've heard that some popular cryptocurrencies have monthly increases in difficulty of 25% or higher. It seems like uh, a calculator that ignores this is worthless. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, so let's talk about these mining calculators and how difficulty is uh, configured for Bitcoin to fully answer Charlie's questions and part of Dave's questions at first. I'll provide some links for all this this stuff that we'll discuss here, but basically these calculators will ask you what mining algorithm your hardware is using, your wattage of the device, and lastly your kilowatt per hour for your municipality or city that you live in. Most of these calculators are going to ask this stuff. Then it will list the most profitable coins to mine matching that algorithm you entered with some sort of breakdown of profit loss per day. I'll uh, also assume that these calculators update based on price info at least every 15 minutes or so. Um, And I'll also assume that these calculators are tracking all of the currencies that they list uh, for updated difficulty and other pertinent network information as well. So for Charlie's question about the calculators that allow for putting in values of difficulty and do these calculators account for the change over time, I would say no, they do not. This is because it would be impossible to know as difficulty is always changing based on other metrics in real time. Like with Bitcoin, it's rather straightforward as difficulty changes in proportion to hashing power or how many miners are on the network. So if a a calculator allows for difficulty input, then that is just uh, to give you a very accurate snapshot for that specific time, and that is all. That being said, there are many probabilities you can consider of whether the average consensus is is difficulty will go up or down in the long or short term. So uh, it's a gamble, but many people are taking this gamble and winning based on all of the information to consider. Uh, An example could be like with Bitcoin, of course, consider the current difficulty, which is based on the current hash power. Also consider 
uh, competitors that may have recently become more profitable. So you may want to switch. Uh, you know, you may want to switch, which is always something to watch as a miner. Another thing to consider is the supply schedule, which will most likely affect the price over time. With BTC, this is the the supply reward halves every four years, putting upward pressure on price. Well. This will most definitely affect your mining profitability too, so this is useful information to consider um, when deciding to mine a coin meeting or long term. Uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say also is that these mining calculators are just for you know a quick snapshot guide and not the whole picture. Uh, so to answer Dave's question further of how to determine how quickly difficulty will change over time, of course depends on the coin you're going to mine as they all have different schemes and systems. But if you consider BTC or Bitcoin, then it's very clear that the difficulty adjustment will occur every 2016 blocks, or roughly every two weeks. Now, whether it will go up or down will be determined on the amount of hashing power on the network. This hashing power can be affected by competitors becoming more profitable. Now, when I say competitors to BTC, here I'm talking about mining only. So Ethereum would not be a competitor to Bitcoin with respect to miners because... The mining algorithms are so different uh, that the hardware is not compatible. So when I say competitors, I mean only uh, any coins that gets mined with the SHA-256 algorithm with Bitcoin. Right now, with Bitcoin, uh, this is being challenged by Bitcoin Cash because they have the same mining algorithm. Miners can switch in a matter of minutes from one coin to another. So if BCH or Bitcoin Cash becomes more profitable to mine, then many miners will stop mining BTC to mine BCH and vice versa. So most you know, successful miners are always watching this landscape and are not married to any one coin which they are mining. As to Dave's uh, question of is it reasonable to build a rig and turn a profit in under six months, I did answer this exact question pretty much on episode 2048. 2048 of TSP. So just go to my website, cryptoskim.com, click on TSP questions, scroll down to that episode um, description, and there I'll have the links and supporting information of that response. So lastly, we have a question from Wanda where she asks, for tax purposes, how does a miner describe the value of a mined coin? I understand the income is generated when the coin is paid into your wallet. Is there, uh, is there a currency site accepted as the source of the dollar value of the coin paid into the wallet? Um, my son and I started a mining business in June. To date, we have not located an accountant who knows what cryptocurrency is. Uh, we found the IRS answers on irs.gov, but many answers were short on specifics. We need day-to-day specifics uh, and prefer not to wait until the beginning of the year to collect data needed for taxes. Wanda. All right. Thank you, Wanda, for these tough tax questions. Ugh. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but every time I have to venture out into the land of reading legal documents or legal guidance slash guidelines, I feel like I'm reading a different language. It's, uh, you know, many times it, I may, I may have to read it over and over and it's still very vague as to what exactly they are saying. I'm not sure if this is on purpose, uh, so there's always wiggle room from some, for some judges' interpretations, but it's very annoying to say the least. Maybe this is why, uh, you know, maybe this is why I don't trust the legal system, as it almost always seems like they're trying to trick me or something. I guess this is why we hire lawyers in some cases. Okay, so first off, 
I'm not a lawyer, and this is not legal advice, but I did find some decent information as to whether or not mining uh, BTC is a taxable event. I'll provide the links over at my website, like I said before. Um, again, it seems that there are, is some ambiguity with regards to this, but let's, let me quote this source that I found uh, that I'll link to. There's a, there's a bigger statement here, but I'll just, there's a, here's an excerpt from that. Quote, since Bitcoins are uh, currently traded in various online marketplaces, when someone receives Bitcoin, they can reasonably calculate its value in the local currency because of this. It is possible that taxing authority will treat the receipt of Bitcoin through a mining pool or from an individual mining operation as either a taxable as a taxable event. At that time, the taxpayer would be required to estimate the legal the value of the bitcoins in dollars and record that amount. This would have to be done either daily or weekly depending on the value of the bitcoins if their value keeps fluctuating as much as it has in the past few weeks. These amounts would be recorded as revenue from bitcoin mining operations and would be taxable less allowed expenses, you know, so just subtract your expenses. Uh, when selling mine bitcoins, however, you would be taxed on the increase between the value you recorded them at when you first received them and the value you sold them for. So it would be subject to the capital gain, right? Another possibility is that the government will consider mined bitcoins intangible personal property. As a rule, however, financial instruments are excluded from this particular category. The question is, are bitcoins a financial instrument? <clears throat> Excuse me. Or rather... Will the taxing authority consider them a financial uh, uh, a financial instrument? We will have to wait and see if Bitcoin becomes popular enough for a position to be taken on that. End of quote. So there's some information of whether mining is a taxable event. You can dig into that. Um, you know the the I guess the short story is it's it's still sort of ambiguous. Uh, but if you want to be safe, you can take a certain route, or if you just want to take your chances, you can take another route. So now for the question of whether there's accepted price for BTC, uh, not really, but you could just take the average of all the biggest exchanges around the world if you really wanted to, or just pick one that has the biggest volume based on your local currency. I'll assume you use uh, US dollar because you said dollars. Uh, in either case, I'll provide a link uh, to something that it would suffice, I'm sure. Well, I hope this answers all of your questions. I'm sorry this is long-winded. I'm just trying to jam through these responses. I've got a lot of questions, and when I see three that line up like this that are so similar, I try. I'm just. I'm trying this. I'm trying to lump them together to uh, to make it a little bit easier to get through them. So, yeah. So anyway, again, just you know, for all the supporting information for this response, go to cryptoskim.com, click on TSP questions, scroll down, find the episode number in the description to this response, and there will be all the links and supporting information. Well, I hope you guys all have a great day. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim signing off. Okay, so I wanted to let you guys know about this, kind of start pre-priming the pump here, so to speak. Um, a friend of mine named Benjamin Fitz, who, who, goes, who I go way back with, I go so far back with Ben that I had already known him for a long time, the first time we ever met in person. And the first time we ever met in person, we met, I think, in Massachusetts. And I was traveling, and I was working for Fluke Networks. That's a long time ago. I was uh, 
I was the uh, sales manager for the northeastern region. I was the uh, nor basically northeast uh, uh, sales VP for the uh, infrastructure side of Fluke Network's testing equipment. And Ben came out and met me. And we'd already known each other for, I think, like five or six years through an online interaction. And we had done some business together and stuff like that. We had never actually met. And we're still friends today. Ben is the guy that just completed the upgrade of the member support brigade for me. He's the guy that built it for me in the first place. So obviously I have a lot of confidence in Ben from a business standpoint, from a technical standpoint. Um, ben, I think, learned an awful lot from me on search engine optimization. And we were able to work together with his programming skills and a lot of the stuff that I did back in the day, so to say, uh, early days of, of the, the Internet with basically just beating Google into my own little version of pitch and making it do whatever I wanted so that I could make lots of money on their AdSense platform and other things uh, was enabled by uh, PHP programming that Ben was able to do for me and then give me a, a script that I could use to basically make multiple sites that did rotational content and things like that. So just want to give you the frame of reference before I tell you what's going on. So Ben is working right now to put together a cryptocurrency mining company It's going to be pretty cool. The way it's going to work is you decide what equipment you want to buy. You buy the equipment. It shows up at Ben's facility. Ben will then install the facility and set it up to start mining and have it deposit the mined cryptocurrency to the address of your choice. So effectively, it'll be like building your own GPU miner and having it mine to you. In return for doing this, they're going to charge a management fee in crypto. Uh, the only out-of-pocket fee is going to be upfront. And that is going to be in, uh, you know, U.S. dollars, basically, uh, to buy the equipment, which you own. If you decide at some point, I want my equipment, I don't want it to stay with you anymore, please send it to me. They'll send it to you for, for the cost of shipping. If you decide I don't want it anymore, I want to sell it, they'll we'll try to sell it to you to a customer at a discounted rate. If you decide at some point I want to upgrade, they will try to sell it for you at a discounted rate, and that way you can apply that money to buying your new, more upgraded equipment. Um, I just was talking to Ben this morning. I said, you know, people are really going to want to know what ROI to expect. And they're probably going to start with mostly mining Ethereum because it is one of the better things to be doing right now. And he said, you know, it's impossible really to give somebody an ROI. And the reason is simple. What happens if Ethereum goes to $150? What happens if Ethereum goes to $500? How do both of those things affect your ROI? However, using the same equipment... He and his partner that are doing this project together that did it for themselves first, which thank you for that, Ben, because I, I could not, no matter how much I, I have faith in the guy, if they weren't already doing it for themselves, I wouldn't have faith in recommending them to do it with somebody else. But uh, he said their, their payoff on the equipment they're running right now was six months. And everything after that's profitable. That's great, but he can't guarantee that. So there's always that kind of delta in there with, with crypto mining. I do think crypto mining is one of the best ways to get crypto, because it's the only way to get crypto that's completely clean of, is it yours? I don't care whether it's an anonymous type of crypto or not. You can't tell me you know who owns that Ethereum or who owns that Bitcoin or who owns whatever. It, but when we buy cryptocurrency, then you can create a, a, a tracking point. We can create a, a genesis of when that Bitcoin got into the hands of that guy. And then we can follow it everywhere it goes from there. And if you know who owns the address, you know who has it. It's not 100% anonymous. And the IRS is jacking around with shit like this right now. Now, I'm not one for cheating on your taxes. I am one for maximizing tax consequences. And, you know, Brandon talked about that a little bit in there as well. Um, but I just wanted you to know that's coming. 
and I'm going to be working with Ben this way. I'm going to basically be an affiliate for him. I'm also going to be his first official customer. We're figuring out right now what equipment I'm going to buy as as as, as going in the door, and then he's going to actually be. We're going to be building basically. I am going to put all the money that I earn from being his affiliate into buying gear of my own, so that they're just going to be mining crypto for me. It's all they're going to be doing, and I'm taking a very small piece, just basically to refer traffic to him. The reason I wanted to put that on today's show is want to make you aware that it's coming. And two, the other thing I wanted to do was make sure that if you know Ben because of me, that you make sure you go through me <laughs> instead of go straight to Ben when he launches his site. And I talked to him about that today and told him, I said, basically, I want to be part of your launch, not control it. He was very gracious and said he understood that as well. So that's just some stuff there. So next up, my kind of anchor segment for today. And uh, this one, you know, what I do with these anchor segments, I take sh questions And, and comments that usually come in for the feedback shows. And as they come in during the week, I'll pick one and go, that's a good one for a Friday. you know. And so I won't hold it till Monday. That's how this one came. It came in from a guy named John. And I want to be very clear. I am not saying anything bad or negative about John at any point while I respond to this. This has nothing to do with John as a person. This has to do with a psychology that goes on in people's minds that I think is interesting to understand. So here's what John said. Uh, recently started listening to Enjoy the Podcast, traveled over 24 hours with my son, Nine, to see the eclipse, and binge listen to most of the drive at one and a half speed. I don't know how some of you do that, but a lot of you do that. I noticed you said a couple of times that taxes are theft. I have sort of a different point of view. You may or may not give a damn, but I thought I might share People start looking at me like I have an alien with three, I'm an alien with three heads when I start talking about this, but I think everyone in the U.S. pays taxes voluntarily. If I decide I don't want to get out of bed tomorrow, I don't make any money. When I don't make any money, I don't pay income tax to the federal government, the state, or the township. If I had played my cards differently, I could have my partner and children on government support paying for my home, food, and other things. I foolishly married my partner, and worse yet, she is very productive too. I could be completely on government support if I really want to, uh, and and not only not paying taxes, but completely sucking off the public coffers. I could live in a location where I pay no state or local income tax. I could draw. I could live in a location where I pay no property tax. Good luck with that, by the way. <laughs> okay, fine. I could have a cash business and pay no tax at all. I could be a beggar. My point is I choose to get up and be productive every day because it's very well worth my while. I voluntarily choose to participate and pay taxes. I pay outrageous property taxes mostly because my wife and daughter really love our home and the location where we live. I could put my foot down tomorrow and they would follow me if I really wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I could work for the federal government. Then any taxes would simply be a rebate on part of my salary. I wouldn't really have to produce anything in order to pay taxes. Hopefully you see my point. Not theft, voluntary. You and I are in full control of how much or how little tax we pay. It comes down to the choices we make every day. Want less taxes, produce less. It's that simple. I bet either one of us could suck from the public coffers better than just about anyone else if we put our minds to it. But that's not how we work. I blame my parents keep up the good work. Um, here's what I sent back to him. I said, there's a reason they look at you like you have three heads. Your logic is circular at best and completely nonsensical at worst. Uh, if we accepted your basic premise, you are saying that I don't have the rights to my own labor and efforts. It's that simple. Telling me if I don't want to pay taxes, don't earn any income is the same thing. What a man builds and works for is his own. That is the only true moral stance. 
And I tell him why I think he's doing it. I want to save that because that's the main thing I want to talk about today. And, he said, and I also say, I'm not putting you down. Please understand that this is actually a great topic, and I will likely use it for my segment on Friday. Uh, and then John says, I'm not sure I understand. John, I agree with you. I don't think you understand. I build and work for other people, and they pay me for my efforts. What I build belongs to them because they compensated me for my efforts. I don't see a significant difference between that arrangement and the government building a road and then charging tax for the use of it. Either one seems perfectly moral. You said taxes were theft. I assume to mean that taking money without permission. The fact that I am will I willingly pay in spite of knowing about them beforehand and have a number of options to avoid them in addition to earning less implies permission. That isn't theft. I pay with objections, but at the end of the day, I pay by choice. I think what they do with the money is a real shit show, but they aren't stealing from me. Now asset forfeiture, forfeiture that's theft. Well, how the hell is taking my income without my permission different than seizing my assets? Seriously, if you want to, I mean, just I'll, I'll go right there if you want to. But well, let's look at it a different way. So what I sent back to him, and I don't have the part I sent back, was basically, now hold on a second. You just said that you work for other people, and what you produce is theirs. Okay, so then what about them and their, their taxes? They pay more in tax than you do. If it's theirs, why can it be taken from them? I, I told them, I said, honestly, I probably pay more in tax than most people on the average median income in America make a year. I don't work for somebody else. I pay for every single thing that enables my business, from a domain name to web space to customer service to you know, electricity to run all the equipment. I, I pay for everything. I built everything that I have. So if, if you're, what you're actually saying then is, well, then... Employee, it's okay to tax employees, but not business owners, right? I mean, if when I, if you work for me, and what you build is mine, then they're still stealing what's mine. That, that's pretty obvious, right? But see, the problem even with that is it, 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 it ignores the fact that you have a right to the fruits of your labor. When you come to me and you want a job and I hire you, and you do work for me, Yes, the work is mine. I bought it from you. So the results of your work, if I hire you to do programming and you program software for me that I sell, I own the software. I can make as much or as little as I want on it, but it's mine. I paid for it. You were compensated for your knowledge and your time. The money I gave you is yours. When the government takes that, it's theft. It's absolutely theft. There is no other word for it. And it's not voluntary. And if you want to feel that you are voluntarily doing it, that's fine. If you want to, and people say that, well, I'd pay my taxes anyway. First of all, no, you wouldn't. But even if you would, you can't speak for everybody else because I don't have the option of not paying my taxes. And some of his solutions are basically illegal. So, you know, you could not pay taxes by running an all-cash business. Let me tell you something. If that was actually a true thing and was totally legal, I wouldn't take a dime by credit card. I would do 100% of my business in cash. I absolutely would. But that's not how the IRS works. You might get away with it, but you're risking being caught, and you're risking incarceration by doing it that way. Laying around and sucking off the government tit is basically taking the money that was stolen from somebody else. It's immoral. Especially, don't get mad at me if you're on some sort of assistance and you're trying, but if you willfully do it, you're literally 
participating in the theft. That's voluntary that you've chosen to do that. The fact that I get up and go to work, the fact that I produce a show, knowing they'll tax me, doesn't imply consent. It implies acceptance of a system where people with guns will come get me if I don't pay. And it implies, it implies making the best of the given situation. But the real question here is why will people do this? I told him in my initial response. I skipped it when I read it to you. So I want to ask you, why do you think people will do this? It's not because they're stupid. I promise you, reading what John wrote, the way he wrote it, the way he laid it out his case, this is not a stupid man. This is an intelligent, well-meaning person. So he's not dumb. Now, it's a, it's a preposterous argument that taxes and theft. Like, if you look at the definition of theft, right, and you look at what taxes are, and some smart ass will say, taxes and theft, it's extortion. Extortion is a form of theft. Look up the, look up the criminal code. Extortion is defined as theft through, and then you can read the rest if you want to. Extortion is theft. It's just a classification of theft. So it's theft. Tax is theft. You're stealing that which you did not produce that was rightfully gained by another person against their will. And you can't call something voluntary, voluntary, if you have to enforce it with a gun. Now, if the tax code was set up the way that it is, and basically they said, anybody that doesn't pay, we're going to put a li on a list of people that should be shamed. I would actually say at that point, yeah, it's voluntary. Like, that's what, sure, I put up a sign, I am on the shame list. Please do business with me. You will not have your money used to bomb children in another country if you give me your money instead of my competitor who pays his taxes. I would be okay with that. But if you're going to say, if you don't pay, we will tell you you owe us extra money. We will extort more from you for not paying. If you still don't pay, we will send men with guns who will put you in a cage. And until you pay, or until you pay your debt through imprisonment, we won't let you go and call it voluntary. You can't do that. There's no world in which you can say that is voluntary. And even those of you that don't want to admit it, you know you can't say it's voluntary. You might say it's necessary, but it's not voluntary. And that's the argument you always come back to eventually. How would we? It's necessary. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. This is why people stick to this narrative of it's voluntary. And they go through twists and turns and all kinds of you know, mental gymnastics to explain away something that's simple through some sort of complex rationalization that is at best circular logic and at worst nonsensical. They're moral. They are a moral person. And they also believe that taxes are necessary. They believe that You know, we could have a government that was responsible with our taxes. We don't, but we just should work for that. But if we want roads and schools and a national defense and, you know, basic law enforcement, even if they object to most laws, all victimless crimes, they object to laws that affect those, they still say, like, there is, there's legitimate bad shit people do. I agree. So they think taxes have to be there. There's no, there's no alternative. Okay, so now... What they're faced with is cognitive dissonance, which is mental discomfort with conflicting pieces of information. I am a moral person, and as any moral person, I believe taking something that doesn't belong to you through force is wrong, and I believe that's theft. I believe that taxes are necessary, and they do good things, 
So they can't be theft and they can't be immoral even though they absolutely are theft and it's like the android having its brain melted down with the right question you've seen in sci-fi. does not compute. It doesn't compute. But the human mind is adaptive. And if you put a person into a state of discomfort, physical, mental, it doesn't matter, they will seek comfort. If I put you in a room and I, I don't lock the door, and I turn the temperature up in that room to about 90 degrees where you start sweating, and you know that in the other room it's 75 degrees, you'll move. You'll move. Why? It's uncomfortable. We naturally move away from discomfort toward comfort. So when your mind, and this is all subconscious, this is not how you sit down and work this all out. You work out the rational part, right? The, the attempt to explain it away. But what happens subconsciously is your mind says, tax is theft, but it can't be because we need tax. How do I make this discomfort go? How do I accept the fact that this is a complete immoral system we're in, but yet I benefit from it, and I like that, and I don't want to admit it? You create a narrative. You create, and it might be, well, taxes are voluntary. You don't have to pay them. There's ways not to. Well, there's a lot of things you could say that about. So, for instance... If, if you go out on the street, you're more likely to be robbed at the point of a gun for your wallet. You could say, well, if you just don't go out in the street, since you know that can happen, then it's, it's really voluntary. You chose to go out in the street where you could be robbed. Well, no, I wanted to go to a concert. Well, there's lots of ways you can get robbed at a concert. You totally were asking for it. It's like saying that a woman, by dressing provocatively, invites rape. It's the same, it's the same stupid argument. But no one makes those arguments except idiots. But rational, smart, intelligent people make this voluntary tax argument. Or they'll make some other you know, argument in support of taxation that defies real logic because of the conflict in the mind. And it's so important if we are going to understand ourselves and understand our society that we start understanding that dynamic. And it's important because there will be less obvious places that you'll catch yourself doing it if you become aware of it. You will find yourself rationalizing something that you should not rationalize. And then you have to look, where is the internal discomfort coming from that's causing me to do this? And it makes you a more thinking, more astute person. No, taxes are not voluntary. And the whole thing, well, government builds a road and then charges taxes for its use. Well, that's actually a great argument for not needing government. That's a perfect argument for not needing government. So what you're telling me is that we can build roads, charge for their use, to pay for them. Well, I don't need government to do that. That sounds like a market solution to me. Now, I'm going to say this again as a pragmatist. If our government, specifically our federal government, did the following. They sought our infrastructure so that we could enable commerce between the states. They didn't get involved in it, but they saw to the infrastructure so that it could occur. They saw to the security of our borders. They saw to our legitimate national defense. And that was so we got our roads, right? We got our we got our basic security from the federal government, and that was all the federal government did. I would still say we can go further, but I would be pretty damn happy with it. I'd take that deal tomorrow. If we could. And if it then were left up to states with no interference by the federal government, 
I would actually be okay with that, no matter what the individual states did. Because then you could have true republicanism. Then you'd have states to go, you know what, we've actually figured out how to run our state with no income tax whatsoever, like Texas. And, and the, the issue, the reason it doesn't work better than it already does is because the federal government has leveled the playing field by getting involved in so many things. Imagine if the federal government didn't get involved in education at all. Zero. And Texas set its own educational system. So did Florida. Two states without an income tax. They're already attractive to business and affluent people and people that are productive. How much more attractive would they become? And what if Florida said, we're going to have a state-based education system based on taxes? I think it's immoral to tax people. It's theft. But we have plenty of it now. But Texas had the freedom to say, we're not even going to have a state-based education system. All education in the state of Texas will be private. And the federal government couldn't say shit. What if it didn't work? Well, people would start leaving Texas, and Texas would change what they're doing. Then you could actually start to make the argument that at least some taxation is voluntary. Because I can choose to live in a different state that handles things differently, and I'm going to examine both the services I receive and the cost of them. Do I want to pay privately, or do I want to pay publicly? Now I start to have a choice. It's not perfect, but we're getting closer. Now, the way that it could really work would be, since I don't use the school system, because I don't have any children in it, I shouldn't pay anything. And if I'm a parent and I homeschool my children, or I pay for private education, I shouldn't pay anything. And then if government wants to try to run that, let them go ahead and try it. Now they have to equally compete with private industry. Now, taxation becomes a fee, and once it becomes a fee to use something, when you have the alternative to use something else, and no interference in the market is, is, is taken on by government, because government can monopolize anything it wants to. So it has to totally leave the competition alone, and then say we provide a public service, this is a usage fee for it, now it would technically be a voluntary tax. Everything else is theft. Taxing someone's income is punishing productivity. Taxing somebody's property is punishing someone's success. And you can think it's necessary, then you make that case. Don't make the case that it's moral. You have to make the, if you want to make any logical case for taxation, you have to make the case for it as a necessary evil at this stage in the evolution of society. You can't make a case that it's moral because theft is immoral no matter who does it. And you can't make a case that it's not theft because it's theft. And I'll just end with this. When you say, but we voted. So let's say you, I, and my buddy David all go out to a really nice meal. And we have a great meal. And at the end, everybody gets their wallet out to pay. And I reach over and grab your wallet. And I say, let's take a vote on who should pay. I think he should pay, David. What do you think? And we both raise our hand. Oh, we voted. And I pull out your card. And you know, I pay for the entire meal, and when it comes back, I give her a nice fat tip. I hand you your wallet back, and I say, hey, we voted. It's not theft. We all agreed to come here. You didn't have to come. You knew you were going to pay something. You just didn't know how much. Once we voted, you decided. And you say, but Jack, people know all the rules in advance with voting here. First of all, your vote doesn't count. Mathematically, it doesn't. And second of all, I never agreed to the terms of the contract social contract does not apply to me. It was made without my consent by people that did it long before I was ever born. 
If you want to make a case for voluntary government, there's a lot of ways to do that too. There's a lot of ways to do that too. Opting into the services you want and opting out of the services you do not want. We have a much more productive and happy society. The reason you rationalize it is because you're a moral person trying to ra rationalize something that's immoral. You're trying to rationalize the fact that money can be taken from me against my will and used to do things that I find morally reprehensible. And even if we disagree about what they are, every single taxpayer would tell you there are some things done with their money they find morally reprehensible. Cognitive dissidence, the condition in the mind that is created when you have conflicting information and it causes you mental discomfort. You try to move away from it, and when you can't, you rationalize it. That's why people do it. I just thought that would be an interesting segment for a Friday. Anyway, with that... I want to remind you, one of the ways you can help support our show would be through going to tspaz.com whenever you shop on online or on Amazon. I do not have an item of the day for you today, but I do want to throw out another call, and I have a link in the show notes for my review on it, uh, the Nebo Larry uh, work lights. I have already got a bunch of people, like, because Amazon ships so damn fast. Like, I got this. I can't believe how bright it is, stuff like that, yeah. And a lot of people have said, I knew about this a long time, and I've been using them forever, and they're great. I mean, they're like eight bucks. They come with the free batteries. Those things are awesome. And I want to throw out another plug. I mentioned this show, this book last Friday, and I have a link in the show notes for it. There's a book called The Illuminatus Trilogy. It was written in the early 90s by Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson. And it is basically every conspiracy theory and more. And there's a lot of stuff that's, that's been in like pop culture, TV, and stuff that's straight out of Illuminatus. Remember there was a thing called Seascape or something like that? And there was a talking dolphin in it? Yeah, that they totally ripped that off out of uh, uh, the Illuminatus Trilogy. Now, it's true the captain of that sub wasn't Hagrid Selene, who you'd meet in the Illuminatus Trilogy, but it's, uh, it's interesting. The big thing is what you watch through the whole thing, or read through the whole thing of this book, is that all of these competing organizations, you know, all these different demonstrators and protesters and all they're actually working for the same people and then they don't even know it. And they're furthering an agenda that neither of them wants. It's a huge lesson for us in today's society. And you might start seeing the Fenords if you read Illuminatus. So check it out. You can find it uh, in today's show notes. And you can always support us by going through tspaz.com when you do your online shopping at Amazon. All right, so <clears throat> song of the day today. Um, When I heard this song or heard about this song, read it, I, I was like, how, how do I not know this song? I'm a huge fan of Dan Fogelberg. He's one of those guys, he passed away in his 50s of prostate cancer, and he's one of those people that when you lose that person, you're like, why? Why him? Like, this guy was nice guy. Not just great music, nice guy all around. Never caused any trouble, never did any stupid stuff, you know, never was in your face with, with political ideology that's just ridiculous. You never heard about him getting in any trouble. He was never into tablets. I mean, just a nice guy. Basically, uh, a private person that lived in a, in, a, in a place in Maine for like 25 years, and no one ever figured out where he lived. Just wanted a peaceful life, and poor guy passed away. Uh, and I've always loved his music. He's also a guy that... So Dan Fogelberg tells his dad, I want to I go pursue music. His father was actually a band teacher. His father wanted him to continue through college and things like that, but his father gave him his blessing. Leader of the band is, is basically autobiographical about this whole thing. But the thing was, Dan Fogelberg, with no agent, no connections, goes to L.A. and in 18 months has a recording contract. 
You don't just do that. He did. That's just It was pure talent and some charisma, I guess. So when I heard this song, Forefathers, I was like, how? I mean, I have a whole channel on um, on Pandora built off of Dan Fogelberg. I listen to it all the time when I'm working and stuff like that. How the hell? And I've never heard this song. And it is a, it's another very, very biographical song. It's about his ancestors, uh, the two sides of his family, one coming, you know, one side coming from Scandinavia and the other side coming from Scotland, coming to America around 1924, how they met, how those two families became one. And this song is just beautiful. And I think you'll really enjoy it. It's a great song for a Friday. But I think the timelessness is is what's so amazing. It's, so listen to the, the chorus here. And the sons become the fathers, and the daughters will be wives, and the torches passed from hand to hand, and we struggle through our lives. Through the genera- Though the generations wander, the lineage survives, and all of us, from dust to dust, we all become forefathers by and by. You know, you think back to your forefathers, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, the things they did, the things they went through, the things they left behind for you, the way they lived their lives. But you sometimes don't think about the fact that someday, someday, you'll be that person. And if you do, it makes how you live your life and what you do with it far more important. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. They came from Scandinavia, the land of midnight sun. And crossed the North Atlantic when this century was young. They heard it in America, every man was free. Just to live and be who he could be Some of them were farmers there And till the frozen soil But all they got was poverty For all their earnest toil The Savon was a sailor Who sailed the wide world round Home board and got drunk when night walked off the pier and drowned. My mother was of Scottish blood, it's there that she was born. They brought her to America in 1924. They left Behind the highlands and the heather-covered hills, he came to find America with broad, expectant dreams and iron wills. My granddad worked the steel mills of Central Illinois. His daughter was his jewel. His son was just his boy. Thirty years he worked the mills and stoked the coke that fires. 
Look toward the day when he had last turned 65 and would retire. And the sons become the fathers, and their daughters will be wise. As the torch is passed from man to hand, and we struggle through our lives. Though the generations wander, the lineage survives. And all of us, from dust to dust, we all become forefathers by. After the war And they settled in this river town We find Sanji born One became a lawyer And one fine pictures drew One became this lonely soul Who sits in now and sings this song to you And the sons become the fathers And the daughters will be wise As the torches pass from hand to hand And we struggle through our lives Though the generations wander The lineage survives And all of us, from dust to dust We all become forefathers by Bye. Bye.